The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people. All the boat rockers are in the house and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution, not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. And for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I hold to the book, the Bible. As the authoritative word of God, glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com. Also, SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of the radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right. You can see the face that's made for radio. Head over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. There you're going to see um, two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left side of the page is Bradley's education educational video. Or no, he was on the radio yesterday. Uh, but we had to pull that because of some, something that was going on in between the transmission from his house to Restream. Uh, I don't know what was going on there. So that's why we pulled the video. Uh, it was good on the radio station, but not on the video platform for some reason. So this is an educational video. Bradley should be with you at 3 p.m. Eastern today on SonsOfLibertyMedia.com right there. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button. Blow it up whatever device you got. Look for the rumble icon, bottom right-hand corner. Click on that. Join us in the chat on Rumble. A lot of friends over there this morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys. And uh, while you're over there, please subscribe to that channel, Sons of Liberty Radio, live on Rumble. And then finally, we're over on BeforeIt'sNews.com, top of the page there. We appreciate uh, Michael Roach and his team giving us a spot on their platform. And then right up under uh, where we're streaming live on SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, uh, top right side of the page there, You'll see where you can sign up for our email newsletter. Again, that's all the articles we have for the day going out, including uh, the morning show archive. So you've got those things in there. Uh, they come in your inbox late afternoon, early evening, every day. And uh, be sure to check that out. Also, our store is available. Uh, we're highlighting Bradley's book, uh, All the Profits Are Pointing to the Front. So that's in there. It's $10. You can get there by way of the menu here off of sonsoflibertymedia.com. Or you can get there directly by going to the sonsofliberty.squarespace.com. Don't forget the in front of there, the sonsofliberty.squarespace.com, and uh, you can pick that up there. Okay, all right. So I got to tell you, I um, I, I went to bed last night, kind of going, okay, Lord, you know, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm always going, okay, uh, what can we give the people? I, I, I what do you want to, what do you want to talk about with the people? I, I don't know. Um. Didn't really have anything, didn't have anything this morning when I woke up. And in fact, to tell you the truth, I feel like I'm, I was telling my son, I feel like I'm still asleep for some reason. Like, 
I'm, I know I'm awake, but I feel like I'm a little asleep. And um, it came to me the other day. We, we did a show. We made mention of uh, God's election. So this is going to be a little different than you know normally what we're talking about, I guess, uh, in the mornings. But uh, these are important things because they are teachings from the Scripture. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer of what a guy once said several years ago. And that was our orthodoxy, which is our straight doctrine, our right doctrine, our sound doctrine, leads to orthopraxy, or how we practice, what we do, what we say, how we conduct ourselves. We do that because we think rightly. And I think what, at least my estimation on this particular subject we're talking about this morning, which is God's electing grace, um, I've never... This has not been something I kicked up against because this is what I experienced when I came to Christ. This is what I experienced. And I know many others have experienced it too. Why? Because at the forefront, man will not seek after God on his own. He won't. He will seek after idols, but he won't seek after God on his own. There is no one who seeks after God. Read Romans chapter 3. It's what it says. They've all become unprofitable and uncorrupt. They don't seek after God. They seek after idols. That's what they do. So I thought what we'd do, and I think we've probably covered this before, but I thought what we'd do is we'd walk through a few passages because uh, the other day we we did a show, and I kind of mentioned it, and uh, some guy goes, oh, I want to give it a thumbs down. Now, this guy, he shows up, I think, in the afternoon on Bradley's show. I'm not sure, in the chat on Rumble. And, um, you know, I, look, I, I invite you to, uh, I invite you to call in if you want to, if you want to give us a call and you have a comment or question, I'm happy to take it. I mean, we can have dialogue about these things. I'm not one that beats people up over the head over these things, but I do think that the Bible is clear on them. The number is 803-619-9855, 803-619-9855. And what I'll do is I'm going to put it here in the chat. If you guys want to call in, you can. Um, I'll try to take the call. I'll try to make sure I'm, I'm paying attention to things so that we can do that. But I understand that this subject for many people is a very difficult subject. Uh, it, go, it flies in the face of everything that they know, and yet it's exactly what the Word of God teaches. So let's pick up where we see God doing, you know, just the first right out of the gate, God doing what needs to be done. All right. And that's going to come from Genesis chapter. Three Genesis chapter 3, if you want to follow along with us. And um, there you remember the fall took place, right? The, the serpent came and he tempted Eve. Eve saw that, uh, I'm reading here from verse 6, she saw the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, the New Testament enlightens us a little bit to say that Eve was deceived. And that's why Paul says that a woman should not have authority over a man. She should not be teaching in the church. That's why he says not to do that, because she was deceived. He doesn't say that about Adam. Adam just went along with it, okay? Adam wasn't deceived about anything. He got the command directly from the Lord. He knew better, and he did it anyway. And so he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So, it, you you got to get the picture here. They live in paradise. They are they are perfect. They're without sin. 
And all of a sudden, everything that's been provided for them and all, that's immediately gone. They realize they're naked, and instead of going to the Lord and saying, hey, we did what you were supposed to do. We're really sorry. Please forgive us. They don't do any of that. They go try to cover up their nakedness on their own. And then they go and they hide from the Lord so that he has to go find them. Check it out. Verse 8, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Now, God doesn't have amnesia. He, he's not, he, he's not uh, ignorant as to where Adam is, but he's calling out to him, Where are you, man? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid. He had never been afraid of the voice of God before. And there was a reason he was, because he was naked. And he said, I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now, what Adam should have said was, I did it. Yep, I did. But that's not what he does. He blames God. See, see what the fall does? I want you to just notice these little things that the fall does to man. And this is why there is the need for the electing grace of God. Okay? Listen, listen to what the, what the fall did to man. The man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Adam's trying, he's trying to put the blame on God. You made this woman here, and she gave her, she gave me of the tree, and I ate it. It's your fault for making the woman. It's her fault for giving me of the tree. He doesn't own anything. He goes on and he says, And the Lord God said unto the woman, Well, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, Well, it's not my fault. It's the serpent. The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And so the, the Lord goes, he's, he's, this is the last stop here. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above all beasts, or every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I'll put enmity between the, this, this verse here is what we call the Proto-Evangelion. It's, it's the first gospel, if you will, um, at least the written gospel. Uh, we, we talked with Bob Sisson, if you recall, uh, about the gospel that's written in the stars, the constellations, uh, that tell us the gospel message that God uh, has for his people. But here he says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Huh. So what we see here right off the bat is when the fall occurs, that's when man disobeys God. When that happens, what, how does man respond? Does he respond in holiness and right? No, he runs and hides. He tries to cover up his sin. He puts the blame on God. He, I mean, doesn't this sound like man today? See, man hasn't changed. He finds new ways to commit the same old sins, but he hasn't really changed. He blames God for things. He blames other people for things that he's responsible for. That's what he does. And God has to come intervene. He, he, he has to come intervene because if he, don't, if he doesn't do that, then man's going to die in his sin. 
If God does not intervene in man's life, in the individual man's life, that man will die in his sin. Is that God's fault? No. Why? Because we were all in Adam when he committed this first sin. If you recall, uh, Moses talks about, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews talks about the fact that the Levites would be those who paid their tithes in Abraham. Remember when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek? We read that after he took his militia and got Lot back. He paid him in tithes. And then the writer of Hebrews says it was the Levites who were paying their tithes in Abraham because they were in his loins. They came from him. We came from Adam. And so that's why the picture is is that we're sinners because of Adam. And listen, it's affected us in every area it can affect us. You may think, oh, well, I don't do this and I don't do that. And yeah, but you've got probably a covetous heart. And the Bible says that makes you an idolater. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of different things. I was thinking the other day, though, because some people go, well, if this is the case, well, then how is God holding man accountable? We're going to get to that in just a little bit, and we're going to answer it right out of Scripture because Paul anticipates that kind of argument in his presentation of the gospel message in the book of Romans, and he anticipates that kind of stuff. So he's going to bring some of that to bear, and we'll look at that. One of the things that I wanted us to see is, uh, and again, we'll, we'll end up going to Romans for this in just a little bit, but the issue of the hardening of the heart. Listen, fallen man already has a hard heart. He already has it. He's dead in his sin. Go ask one of those guys at the morgue, what happens to the person's internal organs and stuff after they die? They eventually harden. Their bodies stiffen. They, they harden up. I know the body part is rigor mortis. I don't know if they apply that to, you know, hearts and lungs and things of that nature too, but they harden up. Well, what brings that on? Death. Because as long as the person is alive, what's going on with that heart? It's beating. The flesh is, you know, replacing itself every day. The skin cells, all that stuff. And the body is alive. Once it dies... All this stuff starts setting in, okay? So spiritually speaking, the person who is dead spiritually due to the fact that they're in Adam and they were born into sin and they're dead in their sins, what did they do? Well, they do things sort of passively. They rot. They stink. That's what, that's what dead people do. They, they rot and stink. And so the one who is still dead in their sins, they are rotten and they're stinking. This is why Jesus would say, you guys clean the cup on the outside, but you leave the the inside dirty. Or you're whitewashed tombs, but you're full of dead men's bones. He says, on the outside, you look good. On the inside, nasty. Okay? Well, yeah, Tim, but but it's, 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 it's man. Somehow, some people want to grasp and say, man has everything to do with all of it. And he doesn't. You guys remember the story of Pharaoh and Moses. And we're going to talk about this again probably towards the end of the show. Pharaoh and Moses, but I'm going to give you this as a, as a teaser. Well, what happened when Moses went in? God commanded Moses to go in to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh to let his people go so many days into the wilderness to feast, to offer sacrifices. And then it, he says, let them go do it. Did Pharaoh do that? No. 
did God know beforehand, before he even commanded Moses to go, that Pharaoh wouldn't let him go or let the people go? Yeah, he did. In fact, it gets very, very specific, okay, as to how God knew. Because this is a question that people have to answer who want to say, well, God looks down the corridors of time and he sees what you're going to do and he, he's responding to that. Nonsense. God knows all. He's not a responder. He's not a first responder here. He knows all things. He has decreed all things that will ever come to pass. Ever. And they come to pass just as he's decreed them. The, even the bad things. Did he not decree the death of Jesus Christ? Yes, he did. From the very beginning. We just read it, 3.15, Genesis. And then he uses the prophets to give little clues along the way as to who the Christ will be, where he's going to be born, what he's going to be doing, how he's going to die, how he's going to be raised from the dead, how he's going to be king, how the government's going to be on his shoulders. All that's throughout the scriptures, isn't it? Yeah, where God's telling us those things. And how does he do that? Because it's part of his character. He's not looking at a crystal ball to see if you're going to choose him or not. That's just nonsense. He doesn't do that. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that. In fact, the only place you really find that being taught is out of Rome. Roman Catholic uh, catechism is the one that teaches free will. You go read pro real Protestant um, catechisms, Protestant confessions of faith, and I'm not talking about... Uh, Forget the Southern Baptist, whatever that is, Baptist faith and message. Forget that, because it, it really means nothing. They don't hold their people to that, that standard. But you go get a Westminster, you go get a 1689 London Baptist Confession, you go get um, some of the others, you won't see this free will stuff in there. And I'm going to address that in a minute in case you're, you're wondering. But this comes from Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. Let me, give you, let me give you the point. And there is a reason why this is important. Okay. This is not a tempest in a teapot. It's not just a little argument or dispute. These things are foundational for how we do what we do and why we do what we do. Okay? So Exodus 4.21, what do we see? And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I... What does that say there? But I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? God is. He said, look, the Bible says out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is confirmed, right? So let's go three witnesses here. This is Exodus chapter 17, verse 3. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Who's hardening Pharaoh's heart here? God is. And he's, you know, he's already told Moses he would do it before he sent Moses into the land. Okay, Exodus chapter 14, verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So, so who is the one hardening the heart here? It's God. And he's, there's three times here that he's saying that. Now, are there other passages that say Pharaoh hardened his heart? Absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. How these things work together, I don't know. But you can see that God said he's doing it, and he says, I'll be honored upon Pharaoh and upon his host. By this hardening of Pharaoh's heart, okay, God was glorifying himself and the destruction of the gods of Egypt. 
Now, I want to ask you a question. Just here. Moses and Pharaoh got the same word from the Lord, didn't they? Didn't they get the same word from the Lord? God told Moses to go tell Pharaoh, right? So Moses got the message. Moses delivered the message to Pharaoh. Let me ask you something. Who was God working grace in, Pharaoh or Moses? Well, he was working it in Moses. Who was God hardening? Open book test, right? Pharaoh. God was working, he was showing mercy to, to Moses. He had brought Moses into covenant with himself. He was going to use Moses to show his glory throughout all of Egypt and to deliver his people, but he wasn't doing that with Pharaoh. No, Pharaoh's end was destruction in the Red Sea. Do, do you understand the difference? And who's making that decision over what's going on there? Now, are, is Moses making the, is he making a decision? Is he going willfully, if you will, down to Pharaoh to tell him to let the people go? Absolutely he is. Is Pharaoh willingly and desiringly within himself wanting to keep the people there and reject God? Absolutely he is. Are they, are they responsible for their actions there? Yes, they are. They're, that's how the, you can't hold them responsible. They want to do what they're doing, and they're doing it. That does not alleviate the decree of God. Okay? It just doesn't it just doesn't get rid of it. And it doesn't it helps us to see what God is doing. Again, God is not uh, your hippie peanut buttery, slushy, milk toasty, syrupy kind of love God. He doesn't just you know throw love out like candy. God's love is specific. He sets it upon his people. And that's in demonstration in the death of Christ. He, he demonstrates it in the blessings he pours out upon his people, which he has promised them. So, so he is the one doing these things, and we give him glory for that. Let me tell you something. This boy right here what didn't go out looking for Jesus. Uh-uh, I didn't do it. I was over there with the fig leaves, man. I was not up fig leaves and and blaming everybody else for what I was guilty of doing. And then God came looking for me. I didn't go looking for him. And he did something in me. He took out the stony dead heart and he gave me a heart of flesh. That's the difference. And it changed my life. Listen, if you're a person that says that you've come to Christ, but... The thinking, the life, nothing has ever, ever changed. You just continue on that. I, I know what that's like, too. You need to find out whether or not your heart's been changed. You need to examine yourself in that. So let's take a couple of passages here. we got about, uh, about 30 minutes or so, and maybe we'll go over if we need to do that. And again, if you want to call in, um, I'm on a new thing, so I can't put it on the screen right now, but... If you do want to call in, I will take your call, 803-619-9855, 803-619-9855. If you've got a comment or question, you're more than welcome to call. I'm not going to shout you down, but if you call, let's interact, okay? <laughs> let's interact, because if we don't interact, then we'll never get you know where we need to be here. So let me give you a little something that I got the other week. <clears throat> 
<clears throat> as I was pondering some stuff, uh, again, uh, the guy's comment about, uh, you know, he's going to give the video a thumbs down. Well, that's fine. You know, I don't live and die by thumbs ups or thumbs down. I really don't. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, he said, I'm going to give it a thumbs down because uh, you're talking predestination or election. I forget what he was. Well, it's biblical. And it's all throughout the scripture. I'm going to give you three major passages. And listen, when I say this, I don't say it with arrogance, but I, I can tell you the position that will walk through passages of scripture in their context and stay in the context to interpret that particular text are the ones that they have a superior understanding of what's going on there. Again, I'm not saying it as arrogant. I'm just saying that that just seems logical to me that that's what it be. So that's what we do. So when people come back and they say, well, what about this verse? And they'll throw out John 3.16, who is whoever believed? Okay, go, go read it in the original language. And what you're going to find is it's saying, so that the believing ones don't perish. What does that mean for the unbelieving ones? Well, they're perishing. But somehow they get whosoever, which isn't even actually in the actual original language. It's not That's put in there so that you understand what's being said. But I thought about this. Because some people go, well, Tim, how can God hold us accountable if we're unable to do what he demands of us? Well, that's easy. <laughs> he can hold you there because you were in Adam, okay? And you are doing what you want to do, and it's not what God wants you to do. You're wanting to do it. You're doing it. That's how he can hold you accountable. Yeah, but he if he's going to save Tim over here, he should save you know Charlie. Well, now you're making demands on him uh, to be unjust somehow. Well, how is that? Well, because if you're like most people that I run into, you would admit that Charlie has committed the same sins that Tim has committed. And so therefore, they're both under, under condemnation. They're already under that condemnation. God owes them nothing. And so if God chooses to be gracious to Tim and not to Charlie, or to Charlie and not to Tim, well, that's really God's prerogative, isn't it? Because grace comes outside of the law. It comes outside of justice. It's it's hand-in-hand hand with mercy. Okay? Nobody can look to God and say, you owe me salvation. You owe me to forgive me of my sins. Nobody can look at God and do that. That's stupid. That's foolish. So why do people bow up when you start going through this doctrine to show that God is the one who provides salvation? I mean, A to Z, He provides it. He demands faith of you, He gives you faith. He demands repentance of you, He gives you repentance. He demands a hunger and thirst for righteousness, He gives it to you, and He fills it. He's the one who does that, not you, Him. One of the places I was told to read when I uh, was a new Christian was John chapter 6. We're going to go here in just a second. But just to help you understand what this fall did to man, and so that you get an idea of how there's demands on you, but you're limited. Okay? You're limited. <clears throat> Here's a good example. You have to be at a particular court hearing on January the 20th, okay? You have to be there, <clears throat> or 
I don't know. Let's just pick a thing. Somebody's the the, the, the bank is going to foreclose on your house. Okay, you got to be there on the twentieth, or the bank's going to foreclose on your house. On the nineteenth of January, you are desperate for money, and you go in and you rob a store. You're arrested. You're booked. You're thrown in jail. You can forget making the January twentieth court meeting, right? Why are you there in that jail cell? Did you want to rob that store? Yep. Did you rob that store? Yep. That's why you're there, right? Okay. You're still obligated to be there in the courtroom on January 20th for your housing thing. Now, I know the housing issue is not a crime issue, but nevertheless, just, just follow me. Pick a crime and stick it in there. I, I'm, don't get bogged down in that detail. The point is you're obligated to be there. How are you gonna how are you gonna be there? Because you're in jail. You can't be there, can you? Doesn't do away with your obligation to be there, does it? Hmm. You following me? You following what I'm saying? Okay. So when men when Adam went and fell, we call it the fall. He deliberately did what he did. It wasn't like an accident. That's what we think of as a fall. But when we look at him in the fall, we see him deliberately do what he does, and as a result of that, it affects him in every part of his being, in his mind, in his strength, in his emotions, in his heart, in his will. It's affected him in all of that, and yet God still demands the same thing of him that he demanded for, and that was obedience, holiness, righteousness. He's still, he's still, he's still obligated to those things despite the fact that he did something that, may, that rendered him unable to do those things. Does that make sense? The same way that if you went and robbed that store and you're stuck in there and you can't do it, you're still obligated to be there, but you are unable to be there. Why? Because you're in a little cage. That's what sin has done. That's what sin does. Lawlessness. In fact, you'll see it in uh, Pilgrim's Progress. He talks about the guy getting caught in that, and he's locked in this cage, and you know, Christian comes in and sees him locked in that cage. He's been entrapped again. So, keep that in mind. I, I, that, that, I actually wrote that down, because that analogy came to me um, as to what goes on. The, and, and then let me, let me add this, okay, before we read these passages. Imagine yourself in that jail cell. You can't get to the 20th... January 20th deal, you're stuck in this jail cell on the 19th. You can't do it. Now imagine seeing God's grace in that picture of the prison. Okay, let me show you God's grace, and we'll go to Scripture for that. In Acts, I believe it's chapter 12, we read that Peter is in prison, is he not? Now, Peter already has a command from the Lord. He used to feed the lambs. He used to feed the sheep. He used to preach the gospel, all this stuff. He can't do that in the prison. Can't I mean, well, he can. He can preach to the guards, I guess. Uh, but what happens in that, in that scenario? God sends an angel and opens the door so that Peter leaves. See, that's the grace of God. That's what it does. Does that make sense? The grace of God doesn't leave you in the prison cell. It frees you from it to do what you're supposed to do. And God equips you and he gives you the tools to do that because all of that was purchased 
with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not from you, not from your choice, not from your spiritual enlightenment, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to Jesus' words. This is John chapter 6. Again, I was told this is the place you go to as a new Christian. You go to the book of John, you read the gospel of John. Man, as a new Christian, you're, this, will, this will be you know, some fuel for your soul. Excuse me, I need a little water here. This will be fuel for your soul. <clears throat> so, I was just doing what I was told, reading John chapter 6, and I ran across this. And you're talking about, I'm reading this, I was not confused. Okay, I wasn't confused. I was reading this, and I was going, this is what happened to me. This is what happened to me. And I didn't know this was in the, in the Bible. Okay? This is what it says. Verse 28, and we're going to go down several verses here. Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Well, who has God sent? Him, Jesus, right? <laughs> and they said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye have also seen me and believe not. All that the Father... Listen to what he says here. You've seen me, but you don't believe. You, you guys have even seen... Remember, these are, the, these are the guys... Listen, these are the guys that he was, he was feeding, you know, fish and sticks. <laughs> he, was, he was feeding fish sticks across the, the, the lake here, right? They come for the signs. They come for the wonders. They don't come for the Christ. They come for that. You've seen me. You guys don't believe. And then he says this. All that the Father giveth me. What does that say? Oh, I just clicked something, didn't I? Yeah. Let me back that up a little bit there. All that the Father giveth me shall, not may, shall come to me. You guys understand what shall is, right? It's, it's going to come to pass. And him that cometh to me, I will, not may, I will in no wise cast out. So what's going on there? What does Jesus tell them? He says the Father is giving people to the Son, to Jesus. And he says the ones that the Father gives him will come to him, or they shall come to him. The ones the Father gives to the Son, none of them are not going to come to Him. Okay, are you? I'm just going to walk you through this. It's pretty simple to understand, but some people want to make it complicated. It's not. All that the all the people that God gives to the Son will come to the Son, and Him, the one that's given to the Son by the Father, that cometh to the Son to me, Jesus, I will in no wise cast out. Do you see something that is so perfect there of what God does? 
God takes a sinner, sets his love upon him, applies the work of Christ in his life, regenerates him and makes him new, gives him of his spirit, a new heart within him. And that man comes to Christ. I mean, he, his response is to come to Christ. Why? Because he's been made alive. His response is no more dead and stinking and rotting. It is life. He comes to Christ. He wants to shed his old man. He wants to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to live his life pleasing unto God. That is the result of what God does in a man. If that doesn't happen, it's not the work of God. Maybe the work of the flesh, maybe the work of man, maybe emotionalism, whatever it is, but it's not the work of God. Now look at what else he says. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Who sent him? The Father, right? That's who he's talking about. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, listen to that, of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Now, the obvious question is this. What's not been given to him? That, that would be one question. What's not been given to him? He's specifically talking about men here. He specifically had, that's the, that's, the, uh, that's the whole context of what he's talking about. He's not talking about things in the creation. He's talking about men. And the ones that he gives me, I should lose nothing. Now, he clarifies that later on when he talks about Judas, that it might be fulfilled of what the scriptures, you know, prophesied would happen concerning Judas. He does make mention of that later on, but he doesn't do that here. He's, he's giving the general understanding of how things work spiritually, okay? That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this, listen, this is the will of him that sent me. You want to know the will of God according to Jesus in this context? Listen to what he says. That everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Hmm. And I don't necessarily think he's talking about just people's eyeballs. I think he's talking about how they're open to see. How they're made alive to see him as the Christ, the Son of the living God as Peter declared. This is what he's... And then, look, he carries this on, this theme of God's election, of God's choosing, of God's will here. Look at what he says, verse 41, that the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Now, what are you talking about, man? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. Listen, no man, that includes you, listener, that includes me, radio talk show host, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Now, there's an interesting thing about this little word draw here. Uh, you guys remember uh, when... 
Oh, the disciples, it was after the resurrection, and Peter all of a sudden gets up in the mist. He says, I'm just going fishing. And the guys get with him, and they all go fishing. And they hadn't caught anything. Jesus shows up on the beach. He says, throw the net on the other side. And you can, you can understand that the fishermen are like, we do this for a living, man. What are you doing? But they do as he said, and what did they do? They had so much fish, I mean, it was about to pull the boat over. And the Bible talks about them, they dragged the nets up onto the shore. Now, let me ask you something. I hear a lot of people, and they'll go, oh, well, you know, it's a spirit. He's wooing you. He's wooing you. No, he's not. The spirit either makes you alive or he doesn't. There's not this, this wooing and, you know, trying to get a dead man to come to life that way. That's not the way you do it. We've been through Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. That's how you do it. The, the man of God gets up and he speaks the word of God, trusting that the Spirit of God will take it to God's elect because he doesn't know who they are. And that he'll make alive his people. Grace will be given to the hearers who are God's people. And the hardening of hearts, like just like with Pharaoh, will happen among those who are not his, who he doesn't set his love upon. I mean, he just doesn't do it. He doesn't do it in the same manner. Well, here's Jesus. And this again, what he says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Boy, if that's not A to Z, I don't know what is it. Father's drawing the man. The man comes to Christ. Christ raises him up at the last day. And what's interesting is, as they go along down in this context, I'm not going to go here because I want to jump to some other ones, but if you continue down in this context, he eventually comes to a place where the people turn away from him. And when they go back to doing whatever they're doing, because they're not going to get any more fish sticks, his disciples come and he goes, are you going to walk away too? And I love what they say. I love what they say. Where are we going to go? You're the only ones with you're the only one with the words of life. Where, where are we going to go, Jesus? Even if they're hard sayings, they're going to cling. They're going to keep going after them. And I'll tell you what: the true Christian, even when they find hard sayings, that's what they do. They keep going after the Christ. They keep following after. They say, "I may not understand some things, but I'm going to keep following after you anyway." They keep doing that. Another passage. Uh, there's two or three here. But I'm, I'm hoping I can get to these. If we can't finish, jump on sonsoflibertymedia.com, beforeitsnews.com, or rumble at Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Again, if, if you guys want to call in, you're welcome to do that, uh, 803-619-9855. Please do not call in after the show's over, okay? Don't, don't text, don't, don't call in, don't do any of that stuff, okay? But you can call in now if you've got a comment or a question or something like that. Please stick to the topic, and again, we're on God's electing grace. This is from Ephesians chapter 1. Again, this is one of my favorite passages. I mean, it really is. Why? Because it exalts God. It doesn't exalt man. Listen to the modern gospel. It talks about you and you and you and you and you. And it's always you're the victim. You're the one that's hurting. You're the one that's broken. And you are hurting and you are broken. There's no question about that. But it never confronts the reason why you're that way, which is... Sin. 
So what do we read here? Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, the saints which are at Ephesus. So we know who he's writing to. Who's he writing to? Class. He's writing to the saints. He's not writing to the world. He's not writing to sinners outside of Christ. He's writing to the saints that are, that are sinners who've been washed from their sins, and they've been placed into Christ, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, understand, this is the first letter he's writing here to Ephesus. Okay? First letter that you get from Paul. And remember, he's the one who established the church here in Ephesus. So it's not that old. It's not like, pick your church. I mean, call our church. Our church has been around since hundreds of years now. (laughs) Okay? Uh, The church we attend right around the corner from us. This is not that. This is a very short amount of time. This is what he writes to them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. When when did he choose those saints at Ephesus to be in him? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated, some people don't like that word either, they want to turn it into something it, it I mean, the word doesn't even mean look down through the corridors of time and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't, it means to, to make a destiny beforehand, to predetermine something before it occurs or before it can occur. Okay? Having predestined us, destinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Listen, the reason this matters so much, the reason this this doctrine, the, this topic matters so much, was right there. That, P, that salvation... Coming to sinners might be to the praise of the glory of his grace, not to the sinner. That's the reason this is so important. And it also alleviates you of the sales pitch. How many of you guys have been through different kinds of uh, gospel training? I, you know, I had been through D. James Kennedy's evangelism explosion. The Southern Baptist Convention came up with something called the continued witness training. I went through that. I would go out even as a lost teenager with my dad, and we would present the gospel to people through that. Maybe in some ways that was seeds getting planted in me. I I don't know. But we can go do that, but in the end, you feel like you have to close the sale. you got to get the person to pray the prayer. I don't have to do that, because I believe that God will Give grace to whom he'll give grace, and he'll harden whom he'll harden. And I can walk away from that being okay with that. Before, you felt like you got to get somebody to pray the prayer to seal the deal, right? It's kind of like making a sale. That's what you felt like you were trying to do. It's always uncomfortable to me. And now I'm not uncomfortable. I share the gospel the way I share it. I tell people the way I tell them, and I leave it. And if and I go away and I say, Lord, you do with it what you will. I don't, I don't know what... Your purpose is in that, but you do what you will there. Move on to the next person. Back to verse 6, Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted 
in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now, what do we read this just for these first seven verses? Who's getting the glory here? Is it man or is it God? It's God. God is the one doing everything. Man's not doing nothing. Actually, he's not doing anything. Doing nothing. That yeah, okay, that didn't he's he's not doing anything. And he comes down and he says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, and yes, I believe in dispensations, the Bible clearly lays those out. I don't believe in dispensationalism, that's a whole different thing. In the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Oh, we got an inheritance with this deal. Being predestinated. Uh, that was determined beforehand. He's telling these saints, all of this, all of what you're experiencing and what you're going to experience in the future has been determined, it's, it's, it's been predetermined to, to bless you with, to be laid upon you, and it's all because of the goodness of God's grace. It's not because of you, it's because of Him. You have an inheritance. Peter says it's kept in heaven for you. Paul says you've got this inheritance. You've got, let, let, me, let me make it just real personal. Some of you know this about me. You know that I'm adopted. Um, I was adopted, I think, within a month of my birth. My parents were told they couldn't have children, and after me, uh, after I was about 12 years old, they had two. <laughs> but when my mom and dad adopted me, they, they set their love upon me. It wasn't like they you know, had whatever God gave them, they, they, they set their love upon me. Uh, I was somebody else's child who gave me up for adoption, which I'm grateful for. Um, but, but they set their love upon me, and they made me their heir. They gave me their name. This is what God does for sinners. He saves them from their sin. He washes them, and he gives them a new name. And he brings them into his family. This is what Ephesians is talking He brings them into his family, and he makes them heirs and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Hmm. And notice what he says. In whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. It's not about your purpose, it's about his. See it? See what he's saying here? Brother, sister, this should not be something that frightens you. This should be something you rejoice in. This is what God has done for you. That we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Did they trust in Christ? Yeah. That was the response of the new birth. That was the response of them being regenerated by the Spirit of God with the Word of God combined. And whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore, listen, listen to what he says, 
I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love of all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word, who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand, at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Look, Paul's writing this like this has already happened. He's already put all things under his feet. He's already given the head to be over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, I've got two minutes here before we have to close out the show, and then we're going to cover a little bit more on the other side. But do you hear what he's saying? He's writing to them, these Ephesian saints, and he's telling them what God has done for them. Not what they've done, what... God has done. And then when he decides he's going to pray for them in this matter, he's praying that God will continue to do things in them. Not that they'll do things, but that God will do things in them. Now, the context leads us to one that many of you will know, which is chapter 2. And remember, in these letters, there's not chapters and verses. So what he just wrote leads right into chapter 2. Okay, let me start this, and then we'll pick it up on the other side. Right after he tells them what God is doing, what he's done, all this predestinating, uh, all this um, set, you know, setting his love upon them from the first, making them heirs, all of this stuff of what God has done, okay? He comes to this, and he says, And you, that's the saints from chapter 1, hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Guys, catch us on sonsoflibertymedia.com for the rest of this, uh, beforeitsnews.com, top of the page there, or Sons of Liberty Radio Live on Rumble. Bradley be with you at 3, and Lord of Willing, we'll see you back here in the morning, 6 a.m., bright and early. Adios. Okay, want to welcome everybody coming over, and I'm just going to finish these up. I've got, I want to cover this little bit here, and then I want to jump into Romans just a little bit. And again, look, I, I'm happy to take, if you've got questions, you say, well, what about this verse? Okay, well, let's look at the context first. Read what's around that verse before you assume you know what that verse is saying. And I, this is, I, I had to learn this the hard way, um, but I'm, I'm glad I did learn it. So here's what we read. He tells them, what God has done in, in chapter 1, what God has done for them, right? In chapter 2, he tells them what God has done for them personally to get them to that place of where the Father and the Son had this thing going on from before the foundation of the world that they were going to save a certain people. You know, they were going to save them in Christ. So here's what he says. He says, you're dead in your sins. You walked in this uh, course of the world, you were children of disobedience. This is what you were. 
saints in Ephesus, among whom also we had our conversation in times past, and the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And so you see, Paul lumps himself in here, he uses the term we. Okay? But God, now he's back to, he, he just gives three verses just to remind them so they don't get haughty and say, oh, well, you know, I'm the one God chose me because I'm so lovable, or, they, you know, you give any kind of example of whatever's going on. Okay? And he shoots that down. He's saying, no, you were dead in your sins. You were children of wrath. You were children of disobedience. That's what he says. So he comes here, and he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Hmm. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, there's that word again, together with Christ. Just to see, look, understand this. When the Bible says that we die with Christ, it also says that we're raised to newness of life. We're raised with Him too. We don't just die in Christ. We are raised with Him. That This is, I mean, He hath quickened us together with Christ, and He says, by grace you are saved. And he keeps throwing it in these little, Paul keeps dropping these little things to say, this isn't about you guys. I just want you to, I keep dropping this thing. This isn't about you. It isn't about your ability. It isn't about your spirituality. It isn't about your enlightenment. It's about Christ. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. (sighs) The exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. I know, I know. Well, Tim, I believed, so that counts as part of what I did. No, that counts to how you responded to the grace of God. It was injected into your life. That's what that is. Don't put your hands on God's glory. Don't do it. Because God, read what he's saying, that in the ages that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God is in the business, I don't want to say this in some kind of, you know, light manner, but he's in the business of showing off, showing off who he is. He's not an idolater. He accepts worship. He accepts praise. He accepts glory because he deserves it. It is his. And the reason he saves sinners is so that what? He can show off the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just see my collection of my people that I showed grace to? And all of those people who've been given grace, guess what? They're going to sing unto him. They're going to give him praise. They're going to give him glory. Why? Because he was merciful to them. He didn't have to be merciful. And this is the thing where people go, oh, God, they, they say that God's unjust or he's unfair or something like this because he predestinates, or he chooses, or he elects? Nonsense. Man is not, no man is deserved to have election put on him. 
to be predestinated to be in Christ. No man deserves to have his sins forgiven. No man deserves to be in the presence of God. No man deserves the Spirit of God. No man deserves grace. No man deserves it. None. Even the ones who are piping up saying these things. None of them deserve that. No, we deserve condemnation and judgment. So the fact that God would give grace to anyone really should astound us. But because we're so perverted and twisted, we go, no, 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 everybody's deserved the same thing. The same chance, same... Well, you had the chance. You had the opportunity. It was in Adam. And he failed the test, and so did you, and so did I. So we've had the chance. It's not that we haven't had the chance. It's just that we failed the test, just like our father Adam. This is why we need a new Adam, the second Adam, as the Scripture says, Jesus Christ. And we need to be found in him. Notice what else he says, and I'm going to close out this part here. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God, look, look at this. God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He's even ordained beforehand that we should walk in good works after being put into Christ. That's what we're to do. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And what's interesting is he goes on from here. You guys know it because we talked about this with Israel. But he starts talking about these Ephesus, these Gentile believers in Ephesus, and how now they've been brought into the commonwealth of Israel. They're the real children of Israel because they have the faith of Abraham, Galatians chapter 3. What God has done for his people is just... We haven't even scratched the surface of it. We're not going to scratch the surface of it here in this lifetime. We're really not. There's another one. Romans chapter 8. Again, the context. This is where I challenge people who will ask about John 3.16 or you know, first Peter, or excuse me, 2 Peter 3.9. Read the context. Pay attention to the pronouns that are being used. Pay attention to what's actually being said. Quit listening to everybody else and just look at what the text says. Just look at what it says. Don't focus in on the one verse without seeing what's around the verse, especially 2 Peter 3.9. You'll see that he distinguishes between mockers, between the believers that he's writing to, the false teachers, those that God is waiting on to bring them to repentance are distinguished separate from the mockers and the false teachers and all those guys. Yep, they are. They're distinguished. It's not every single individual. But you only get that when you stay in the context and you pay attention to what's the words that are actually used. All that's there. So we come to Romans 8, and here's something else we learn. Verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are who are called according to His purpose. Now stop and let that sink in a second. If you are a believer... If you've been called, because he's, we've talked about that, and he's going to point out some things here in just a second. If you've been called um, by God, okay, and you love God, and you're called according to his purpose, then everything, even what you perceive as bad, even some of the most horrific things that you can think of that's bad, are working together for your good. Now, either that's true or it's not true. I choose to believe it's true. God said it. I choose to believe that's, that's true. 
And some people would have some some disagreement with that. Oh, well, you know, this happened with this child, and this happened with this girl, and this happened with this man, and that can't be from God. I just point you back to Job. God used a devil to do it, but he did test Job, and he gave him free reign to, he put limits on him, but he basically says, yeah, go down there and you can mess with him a little bit. Don't ever think that God is doing things and there's no purpose in them. That's why they have purpose. If there's random stuff going on and nothing, then nothing has purpose. Now, that's what they want us to believe. They want, they want us to believe that there's no purpose in this life, that we're just here to work off a few years and get put in the ground or, I don't know, liquefied and put in the waste treatment plant now, whatever they're doing. Notice, notice what he says, though. For whom he did foreknow. Ah, see, Tim, there it is right there. He knew who would choose him, and he chose them. That's the argument that I hear all the time. It's the... I got to tell you, it's it's desperation to try to prop up something that doesn't exist. Okay. Now he he knew because it's part of his character to know. There is nothing that God does not know. So when he's trying to communicate something to us, we have to come at it from the the angle that he's explaining this to us, so we get what he's doing. And so we give him glory for what he's doing. So, for whom he did foreknow. The the idea is this is what he did. He set his love upon him. What is it when you read in the scripture that Adam knew his wife and she conceived? There's intimacy, right? Now, we think of the sexual relationship. I'm not talking about sex with God or anything of that. What I'm saying is there's intimacy there. He set his love upon his people. That's intimate. When a man takes a woman and he puts a ring on her finger and he says, well, you marry me, he is setting his love upon her. That's what he does. And then he goes and marries her and then they consummate that marriage and that is considered an act of love as well. And that usually produces children, which is a a outward visibility of their oneness and a demonstration of their love for one another. And this is what God does. He foreknows. He sets his love upon his people. That's what he does. And this is what he says. He also did predestinate these people, these ones that he did foreknow. He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Oh. So he foreknew, he set his love upon us, he predestinated us, those of us who are in Christ, and he predestinated us to what? To be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 30, moreover whom he did predestinate. Predestinate for what? To be conformed to the image of Christ. So he foreknew people. He set his love upon a people. He predestinated them to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then he says, the ones he predestinated to become the image of Christ, them he also called. He called them. How did he call them? Through the gospel message. This is why it's so important that somebody hear the real gospel that shows them their They're dead in their sins. They're incapacitated. They cannot please God. There's nothing they can do. They are just condemned already. 
And you can hold the law up and you can show them that. And then what you do is you bring them to a Savior after they've shut their mouth from giving excuses. You bring them a Savior and you show them this is the one who can save you from your sins. And you trust the Holy Spirit to bring to Christ those the Father has drawn. And to harden those whom the Father is going to harden. And that's a hard one to say, but you have to trust him in that matter too. He goes on and he says, The ones he called, them he also justified. So I want you to notice something. Now this is called this is not called the golden chain of redemption for nothing. It is a chain. Each link is something different. We've got foreknow in verse 29. We've got predestinate in verse 29 and 30. We've got called. Each of these are little links. God calls them, and the ones he calls, what happens to those people? Them he also justifies. That's another link. He justifies them. What is the justification? He imputes Christ's righteousness to them. He imputes their sin to Christ. That's what it is to be justified. And then whom he justified, them he also glorified. There's the ending of it. It's we're before the Father, fully conformed to the image of Christ. A to Z. There it is. You guys see it? And God's not losing anybody in the process. He's not getting some to the place where they're foreknown, but they're not predestinated. He's not getting some to predestinated, but they're not called. He's not getting some to called and they're not justified, and some to justified and they don't get glorified. No, no, no. There's a link. There's a chain that's there, and it goes from A to Z, and it's God's doing in the work, in the life, and the heart of the sinner to bring him to glorification. Why? Because God is glorified in what he does, in making new creations, just like he did in the beginning. He's making new creations in us. Now, he goes on. Um, actually, let's read that. After he says that, because that's part of the context, why do these things matter to him? This just sounds like a bunch of ideology that's out there. And you just, well, what, how you, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, right? And so we want to understand rightly what God has done on behalf of sinners in Jesus Christ. And this is what he's telling us. I didn't make this up because I certainly wouldn't write it this way. I would make man the hero. That's how, you know, <laughs> that's how men are. Men would make themselves the hero. You know, he got his last little pinky up there to pull up and, and to receive God's grace or, you know, whatever. I, come up with something. Here's what he says. What shall we say to these things? What things? The stuff we just got through reading. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now do you understand the context of that verse right there? If God be for us, who can be against us? How many people thought that was something? It was a, it was a battle line somewhere in the Old Testament or something like that. No, it's right there in the New Testament. It comes right after. Paul tells them that God's done all of this on their behalf. And he says, what can we say to these things? Anybody else getting excited about that? If God be for us, if he's already been for us this far, who can be against us? Yeah, these things matter. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? See, see what he's done? He's taken away sin. 
It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Oh, yeah, our great high priest is still making intercession for us on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And why is that? Because we didn't set our, our love upon God until he set it upon us. John writes in his epistle that, does he not? We love him because he first loved us. And he set his love upon us. And this is, this is what he's writing here. And you get that part right there uh, about what God has done. You see it right in the context. Again, carrying on the context of the entire passage is chapter 9 of Romans. Just going to give you these real quick. And I hope I'm going to give a tip here that may help some people if you are... You know, if you would affiliate yourself as a Baptist, as a maybe a Reformed Baptist or something like that, um, you know, maybe I can offer something here in the midst of this that I learned that may help you with something if you're having a little trouble with some of these things. Uh, I'll try to do that as we go through here. But I just want to read, just going to read it, make a couple of comments, okay? Chapter 9 of Romans, this comes right after what we read in Romans chapter 8. Here's what Paul says. And remember, Paul's making a long argument. He started in Romans 1. He's made his way through Jews and Gentiles. He's made his way through what faith is and the person of Abraham. Uh, he's moving up here and telling people how God does what he does. And he's in the midst of that. And so he says this, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. He's talking about the, the, the Israelites, okay? My kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Excuse me just a second. I have a dry mouth again. For I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, who, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Now, I just want to make this comment here. When he talks about these Israelites and what he says about them is absolutely true. To whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants. All the Israelites were in the covenant. However, we're going to get into this in a minute. Just keep it in your mind. All of them were in the covenant. Not all of them were God's elect. And I'm going to show you that in just a second. In fact, Paul's going to show you that. Okay? So keep those two things separate because i got to tell you, that confused me for the longest time because I was taught wrong. Election and covenant are not the same thing. They're two different things. And I'm going to show you that even out of this context here. And you'll get them from other places as you read the Scriptures as well. You can see it in other people that this happens to. So he says... <clears throat> Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. 
Not as though the word of God hath, none, hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Again, I'm not going to sit here and go down the Israel thing. We've, we've done this numerous times. We may do it, in the, I'm sure we're going to do it in the future, but um, he's simply saying here exactly what I'm talking about. You've got people who are in the covenant, but they're not part of the elect. They're not really part of the true Israel, okay? They haven't had their heart circumcised. They've had their flesh circumcised. They haven't had their heart circumcised. That's what he's getting at. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. You got that? Just because they came from the loins of Abraham doesn't mean they're his children. And then he goes, But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, what was different there? Well, we saw that Abraham thought he, him and Sarah figured out this plan. He was going to mess around with, his hand, with her handmaid. And um, so he has a child by her. And what was his name? Ishmael, right? Now, was Ishmael given the covenant? No. God said, he's not the promised child. I'll bless him. He's going to be a wild man, but the child is the one I'm going to give you. He's going to be the child of promise. That was Isaac. And that's where Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians, especially uh, chapter 3, where he talks about um, who are the children of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham. And it has nothing to do with whether you're a quote-unquote Jew or Gentile, what nation you came from, who your mom and daddy, granddaddy was, your pedigree, any of that. It has nothing to do with that. Verse 8, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. That's why Jesus would look at the Pharisees and he would say, Abraham's not your daddy, or you'd be doing the works of Abraham. Your daddy is the devil, and you do his works. You, you do what he does. And he says, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For, I mean, he's in perfect harmony here with what he writes in Galatians. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah, remember, uh, she's the one who took up Isaac here. Also, I can see by one, even our father Isaac, what did Rebekah have? Well, Rebekah, she wasn't in a, you know, Abraham has a son with a handmaid, and then he has a son with his wife. Two different sons, two different mothers, one in the covenant, one elect, or both in the covenant, one elect, one not. Now you've got Rebekah and Isaac, and they have two sons. So you've got two sons from one mother, same father, and you've got the same situation. Both are in the covenant. They've received the sign of the covenant, but only one of them's elect. Verse 11, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, that's God. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. This is talking about Esau serving Jacob. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, a lot of people have a struggle with that. I, I get it. But you can look. Which one did God set his love upon, Jacob or Esau? Jacob. Which one got the covenant, promises? And was the elect, Jacob. Did Esau get what he didn't deserve? Nope. What about Pharaoh? Did he get what he deserved? Yep. Esau got what he deserved too, by the way. I messed that up saying that. Esau got what he deserved. Pharaoh got what he deserved. Jacob and Moses and Isaac 
got what they didn't deserve. They got what they didn't deserve. It was not owed to them any more than it was owed to Esau, Pharaoh, Ishmael. And notice, Paul already anticipates you guys out there saying, well, this is unfair, this is unjust, this isn't right. No, you've got the wrong understanding. No, Paul already anticipates your argument. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Isn't he already anticipating that kind of response? God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Not who just wants it. I'll have it on the one I have it on. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is free to do that. He is free to pardon. He is free to show mercy and compassion. But he does it on his terms. And then just to make sure that you get it, that we simple little men who want to convolute everything, so just to make sure we get it, this is what he says. So then it is not of him that willeth, nothing to do with your will, nor of him that runneth, You can exert yourself. You can put all the muscle into it you want to. Put all your strength into it. It isn't going to do it. But of God that showeth mercy. It's of God who showeth mercy. And look, then he picks up what I'm talking about with Pharaoh and Moses. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? It's kind of, I can, I can just hear the mockers now. It's kind of cruel for God to raise him up and just destroy him like that and say, ah, I am God, you know, worship me. That's because you don't understand, friend, what God is doing. You don't understand that. He raised Pharaoh up so that he might show all of Egypt who was the true and living God. It wasn't the gods of Egypt that were real, that were true, that created all things. It was the God of Moses who went in there and showed him who was the true God. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, that, again, he anticipates, he anticipates the questions. Here it comes. Thou wilt say unto me, why doth he yet find fault? I mean, if everybody's doing according to his purposes here, according to his decrees, according to all these things, if, if he's hardening whom he will and he's showing mercy to whom he will, why is he finding fault with anybody? Aren't they just doing his, let's put it, his secret will? That's how the theologians use it. The things he's not told us that he's accomplishing day in and day out, minute by minute, second by second kind of thing. Stuff that we don't know. We know it happens, or it wouldn't happen if he had not decreed it. We know that. So he says, why does he find fault? Who has resisted his will? And then Paul gives the answer, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Nay, but, old man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me? Thus, (laughs) hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Let me ask you something. How many of you got up this morning, and I know some of you guys are drinking coffee and tea and whatever else you're drinking water, 
You went into the cabinet, and how many of you opened up the cabinet, and your bottles and your cups started bouncing around and screaming at you not to put hot liquids into them? How many of them did that? How many of them jumped out of your cabinet and broke all over the floor so that they wouldn't have to experience another pouring of the hot coffee into your cup? How many of them did that? None of them did that, did they? They didn't do that. They're made to be used. They're not made to go tell the owner what he's going to do or not do with them, right? That just doesn't happen. This is Paul's argument here. What are you little lumps of clay over there (laughs) made into little vessels here by the Creator? What are you doing talking back? That's what he's saying. What are you doing talking back? Verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? What if he put up with Pharaoh a long time just so when he brought judgment against him, it would bring him all the more glory? Because he'd been patient with Pharaoh for a long time. He'd let him live a long time on the earth, and then now he has his due. Just like all men, all men will... You know, we'll pass through that door too. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? You, you know, th- this one, I got to tell you, this one right here is pretty incredible. Because he puts them side by side. The, the, the vessels of mercy are going to give such great glory because they're going to be contrasted with the justice that will be administered upon the vessels of wrath. Because those vessels of mercy know they deserve exactly what the vessels of wrath are going to get. They know they deserve it. And the reality is, is the vessels of wrath will gnash their teeth and they'll be angry about it eternally. Why? Because they consider God to be unjust and they think they deserve what the vessels of mercy are getting. That's what they do. And this is why People, when you come to texts like these and you walk through them, they want something that they can pull apart and tear down or poke a hole in the glory of God so they can insert their own. They become an idolater doing that. Friend, there's no need to do that. This is, I got to tell you, this has been one of the most freeing doctrines of Scripture, the the doctrines of grace. It's just been one of the most, and by the way, I did not know, this was not taught in our church when I was learning it. I didn't know such doctrines existed. I'd never heard them. But I was reading them. And I didn't know what to do. And again, finally I read a a friend gave me a book. They said, you need to read this because this is, you know, this has been historically this, that, and the other. No, I I didn't know. And they gave me a book. It was called Grace Unknown. If you want to, I highly recommend the book. It was by R.C. Sproul. It's called Grace Unknown. You want to understand how the doctrines of grace work together, really see them in their context and how they fit together 
and it's going to take a lot longer than what I have here because I'm already 30 minutes over, so I've got to close out. Get that book, Grace Unknown. Read it. Trust me, you it'll it'll be it'll be good for you. It'll be great. Um, let me close with this: just the end of Romans chapter nine. Even us. Let me let me back up just so I get that the the sentence in, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had aforehand afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called. Remember, the called are the ones that are justified, justified or you know glorified. All the whole, the whole chain of redemption thing, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, and he saith also in O C I will call them my people. I think that's supposed to be Hosea. Somebody, I think there's some typos here in some of this, the King James Online. Sorry about that. I think that's Hosea. I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Friend, listen. First, if you're a brother or sister in the Lord, if you've really come to Christ, if you've really been born again, you should give glory to God for this. You really should. I, I, every time I read these passages, every time I think about this, I, I get emotional because I see what God has done in my life. And I see what he says he'll do. And they complement one another. I see it. I know it by experience. But if you're a person who's outside of Christ, then the Bible has a word for you too. Do you hear his voice today? Huh? Uh, do you hear what was said to you? The situation that you're in because of your sin? The violations of his moral law? Hating your brother without a cause? Lusting after a woman? Lying? Stealing? Dishonoring your parents? Having other gods before you? Not keeping the Sabbath day? Bearing a false witness? Ah, friend, listen, if that's cut to your heart, you say, what do I got to do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If God's opened your eyes to see that and you can hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't do it. What, didn't you just say God would harden your heart? Well, yeah, God's going to harden the heart of those who aren't his. But if your eyes are open and you see and you believe the truths that we've spoken here on this show, follow after those. That gives evidence that just maybe you are among his elect. If he's drawing you that way, he will draw you to the Son. I don't have to worry about that. He will draw you to him. You will follow after him. You will believe. You will repent. You will bring forth good works. You will do that. But you've got to come to him on his terms, and that means you've got to forsake your sin. You've got to leave that stuff behind. God will forgive you. The Bible says he'll make you a new creature. A new creation where all things are new. Brought into the family of God. Given an inheritance that's kept for you in heaven. What are you going to do? Continue in your sin? Die in your sin? Face the wrath of God as a vessel of wrath? Or are you going to turn and you repent? What's it going to be? Bradley, be with you at 3. We'll see you back here bright and early in the morning, 6 a.m. Lord willing, talk to you then.